0: I'm going to be reading First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And you can follow along in your copy of the scripture, or you can follow along with me. The words will also be up on the screens. If you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to help yourself to one of the Bibles in the church around you. And you're uh, also welcome to keep that if you need a Bible of your own, or if you know someone who, who does. So I'm going to read First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And then we'll have a time of prayer before the message. All right, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, God, we thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to worship you by uh, coming together as a body of believers, encouraging one another, praying with one another, singing songs uh, that recognize who you are and what you have done to save us from our sin, and God, by spending some time in your word recognizing that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have a claim to what goes on in our hearts, in our minds, and in our life. We pray this morning, God, that you might receive glory as we submit ourselves to you in obedience through faith in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this team of young people that are headed up to Seattle. We just ask, God, you would give them safe journey, give them effective ministry, help the leaders get rest as kids stay up late, from what I understand. We pray not only for our church, God, but for other churches. We pray for Grace Church in Central Point this morning. God, that you might encourage and strengthen them as they gather together as a body of believers God, would you help them to rest well in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, We pray also for Rod and Angelica Ragsdale, who serve you so faithfully over in Cote d'Ivoire in uh, West Africa. God, we ask, especially as they they have asked, as a new session of a Bible school is starting, we pray for these students that you might use this training as an effective ministry in their hearts and that they might effectively do the work of the gospel in Cote d'Ivoire. God, we pray for Howard, Fort, and Kathy and their whole family as they mourn Howard's mother's passing. We ask for your strength during a time of sadness. We ask for Howard's dad that you would give him what is needed even as his health is failing. God, be with this family as they look for ways uh, to serve you and seek their comfort in you. Uh, We pray also for Don, Lord. He needs your help. He needs your healing. He needs your strength. God, would you intervene on his behalf? God, we pray for Christina and Miriam and James and Rob and Kim and Mary. These folks need to know you for salvation. Would you bring the gospel to bear on their hearts even this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4. We began reading in verse 7, but our message this morning starts back in verse 1. So back up a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. How to make it to the end how to make it to the end. Now, when I was a young person, that was a while ago, uh, when I was in school, a video game came out for the Apple IIe. And some of you who are really young people say, what's an Apple IIe? And it's a computer that doesn't have a fraction of the power, computing power of your cell phone. For you older folks, you're going, what's an Apple IIe? It's, you didn't realize that was a computer either. Well, it was computers in a lot of schools. And this game came out is called Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Who played Oregon Trail? Okay, so here's how Oregon Trail works. You, You start the game up, and you're in St. Louis getting ready to go out. And you've got to pack your covered wagon, and you've got to try and survive getting to Oregon, right? So you have to decide how much spare equipment to bring, how many spare oxen to bring, all these sorts of things, because you want to know how do you get to the end without having the worst of all things. What is it? Martha has died of dysentery. You've seen it. Some of you don't get that joke. Look it up. You can still download it. Go onto the interwebs. Look up Oregon Trail. You can play it. And Martha, yes, you will die of dysentery at some point. <laughs> and, uh, and so you, how, do I, how do I get to Oregon? That's the whole idea. We're starting in St. Louis. I want to get to Oregon with as many people in my covered wagon alive as possible. And really what Peter is talking about to these believers in Asia Minor is a very similar thing. The end is coming. In fact, the end is somewhat near. How do we make it to the end? What do we need to have in mind? What's our perspective? What's our worldview to be in order to make it from here to the end in Christ Jesus? What does it look like to live a life of faithfulness, not just at the beginning, but all the way to the finish line? And he's going to give us some good things uh, that we're going to see in here based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verses 1 through 3 how to make it to the end when temptation is intense. Verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read them. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. How do we make it to the end when temptation is intense? Another way of sort of thinking about this I have a goal in mind, and how do I get that goal accomplished? even though I know some obstacles are going to come up. So you might make a a goal to eat more healthy this year. You say, I want to get my blood sugar down. I want to get my cholesterol down. I want to lose a couple of pounds. I'm going to eat more healthy. And so you think, well, what am I going to do to uh, make it into this goal of eating more healthy? One idea is not stocking the house with brownies, right? It's just one of those ideas, just don't have brownies sitting on the counter. The way I can get to this goal is I need to uh, take away the opportunity for me to go where I'm going to go. So the question the author of the scripture here has by the power of the Spirit, he's telling us, you are going to be engaged in significant and powerful temptation. We need to have this in mind if we have as a goal living faithfully in the power of Christ to the end. How can we overcome these obstacles? And here's what he says. Look at the end of verse 2 we should no longer we, uh, we should live the rest of time no longer for human passions instead for the will of god and here's what we need to understand the will of god the purposes of god are opposed to the desires of our sinful nature our sinful passions the desires of our flesh the desires of our old way of living will pull us in many different kinds of directions and those directions are opposed to the will of God. So how do I live doing the will of God to the end? I have to understand, I can't have both. I can't have both my passions as well as the will of God. And in fact, what he is saying is to say no to sin because it's a passion of my person is actually, in many ways, a form of suffering. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You can turn to it, or it might pop up mysteriously on the screen. There it is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. The Bible says this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. In your struggle against sin, you've resisted a little. We've done a pretty good job. But we haven't resisted to the point of dying so that we won't sin. See, sometimes we think of it this way. We might think of ourselves heroically. If somebody came in and put a gun to my head and told me to deny Jesus, I'll take that bullet. I even think sort of heroically, but what if somebody come in and put a gun to your head and told you you can't lie for the rest of your life? What would you say? What's the big deal, bro? Everybody lies a little bit. Right, and this is, this is what the Bible, he said, no, let's look at sin for what it is that put Jesus on the cross. He had to die for it. Have we in our struggle against sin recognized that we know we're headed the right direction when saying no to sin results in a real suffering and stress and a difficulty in our life? Look at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. It's not on the screen. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Struggling against sin is, in fact, in the Bible, a form of suffering. To say no to my desires results in difficulty and struggle and, in fact, suffering. If I am hungry and I don't eat, what is the result? Hunger. Is hunger suffering? Oh, yeah. Come on, folks. Hunger, I don't know if there's a worse kind. You know, this, we're saying no to the cravings of our self and in fact when we are uh, experiencing temptation those things that draw us into sin almost always our body is communicating to us this is not a want this is a need everybody needs companionship everybody needs happiness everybody needs joy everybody needs satisfaction everybody needs importance and significance and the way you can achieve that quickly is through sinful behavior, sinful relationships, sinful sexuality, sin, sinful indulgence, in drunkenness. All these things answer these questions very quickly for us. And what we say is, no, I'm going to say no to those things, and everything about our person says, but you need those things. And it results in difficulty, in suffering. How do we make it to the end when temptation is intense? Recognize that Our sinful passions are contrary to God's purposes, and if we're going to pursue God's purposes, we're going to have to say no to our own passions, and it's going to hurt. It's not going to feel good. And look what he says at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 4. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So he's saying, gear up. Have in yourself a mindset of going on the offensive, in a, in, a, in a battle, you would arm yourself with the appropriate equipment to be ready to have victory. And he's saying, I want you armed with the same way of thinking that Christ had, which is, I can deny what I think I need and want for the glory of God because I will take my glory in God instead of in my own desires. Arm ourselves with the same way of thinking Christ thought. This is how Jesus thought in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible says this Have this mind, have this kind of thinking among yourselves, which uh, is yours in Christ Jesus. He, though he was God, did not count ego- equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. And therefore, God has exalted him. So what is Christ's mindset? It is a mindset of humble service and denial of self to benefit others to the glory of God. And we're to arm ourselves with this mindset. Humble service and obedience to God. This is very difficult because the culture around us and even our own heart and mind is going to tell us this. Arm ourselves with a diligent desire to accomplish everything I want and everything you want we're armed to the teeth with the ability and desire to pursue our own agenda and our own purposes and the bible says I've got an idea instead let's set aside our own passions and desires and arm ourselves with Christ's perspective which was deny myself to the benefit of, the, of others to the glory of god all right go back to first peter chapter 4 look what it says i think this is almost funny for the time has passed. This is verse 3. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do. That time has passed for doing what everybody does, which is whatever they want to do. There's a funny argument. What's he saying here? He says, I think you're good. It's time to set aside sensuality and drunkenness and lawless idolatry. And here's his argument. I think you've had about enough. I think you're topped off, so to speak. I think going back to the well on those desires is not needed. You've been there plenty. That is our life that is past, and we know that's not going to satisfy because has it satisfied up to this point? If seeking satisfaction in sin through sensuality, drunkenness, or any of the other myriad sins we we'll pursue, if it satisfied us, guess what we would do? We would no longer need to do it. But it doesn't satisfy because it lies to us and says, oh, yeah, this is where your satisfaction will come from. And the the author of the scripture here, by the Spirit, is telling us, I think you're squared away. I think we've had enough. Our, Our time in sin in the past is good enough. Let's just leave that there and now pursue satisfaction in a new way, which is through Christ alone. Haven't you had enough? In the future, what we want to say is, I want my satisfaction not in my desires, but instead in the purposes of God. Look at the sins he lists there. Some of you are very thankful it didn't list your sins. You're like, oh man, this is going to get dicey, but thankfully it listed all the people's sins from others, but none mine. Here, for the time is past, no longer pursue sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is kind of an, um, an old uh, PBS show. One of these things is not like the others. Basically, you've got different varying uh, views of sexual sin and drinking sins. And then what's the last one? Lawless idolatry. Like, where'd that come from? What is lawless idolatry? So here's what was going on in the first century in Asia Minor. There were a lot of different kinds of religions, a lot of different gods that you could worship. If you had an itch that needed scratching, they had a god who would scratch that itch. And so it's like, well, I want to live this way. Hey, that's great. We got a God for that. We got a God for that. And so you would pick and choose what you were into. So there's lawless idolatry. What is great about this kind of religion is I can worship as a very religious person and still do whatever I want. And what's great about this lawless idolatry, uh, idolatry this cultural pluralism where all forms of worship are okay is I get to be spiritual, and if I decide I'm no longer into that one, I could switch over here, and everything is okay. And the Bible is telling us quite clearly what this is resulting is in no spirituality and rampant sinfulness. Because instead of pursuing God by setting aside our own desires in Christ, we're saying, God wants everything I want. This isn't so different from our time, is it? We have two kinds of lawless idolatry in our culture, and let's be fair, in our hearts. One is this, is that God, I can get to God any way I want. I get to define how I get to relate to God. I can, I can call him this name, I can call him that name, I can worship this God, I can worship there. God is not a God of truth, he's a God of receiving me however my, I might approach him. The, uh, this is a pluralism where all roads lead to, the, lead to God, and the Bible doesn't teach us. The Bible teaches quite clearly the only way we know God Is through Jesus Christ. The other way we do this, this is probably more normative in a church setting, is, well, yeah, I get to God through Jesus Christ, but in the end of the day, whatever my life looks like, this is a theological term, God's cool with it. God's cool. So this is a complete misunderstanding of God's grace. Is God gracious and merciful? Yeah, we're all still alive, so we'll take a check mark on that one. Yes, he is. But God being gracious towards our sinfulness is not the same as God being cool with our sinfulness. Do you see the difference? And that's what lawless idolatry says. Grace says God receives us and accepts us and loves us, but is going to call us into holiness through his power in Jesus Christ. Lawless idolatry says I don't have to change because God is just okay with me how I am. But God is calling us into Christ-likeness, not into lawless Idolatry. How to make it to the end when temptation is intense. You're not going to like this. I'm just going to tell you what it says. Are you ready? You're going to need to say no to the things you want. How do we make it to the end when temptation is intense? We say yes to the purposes of God, and by God's grace and through the strength of the Holy Spirit, we learn to say no to the things we want, which we know are not right. And there are things that we are going to feel we need and it is going to be difficult and it is going to result in suffering and feeling discontented and feeling like other people have life better than we do. But how do we make it to, to the end when temptation is intense is we say no to what we want and say yes to the purposes and the will of God. So what do we get out of that? What do we get out of that? If we say no to our passions, if we say no to sinfulness, we say yes to the will of God, what do we get out of that? God's blessing, right? Sort of. You've been around long enough and you're not falling for that one, are you? Through the lure out there. Well, that's the thing we do nowadays in our culture, in our form of Christianity, in the world around us, it's this. It's if I do things that God likes, he's going to do things for me that I like. And I make fun of it. Sorry, Seth. I don't know why I apologized to you. But this is where we say, okay, hashtag blessed. I said no to sin. So therefore, God blesses me with a new job, new car, new wife, new husband, new dog. Right? What's funny is we say, when you watch these guys on TV who say, send me $1,000 and God will pay your credit card off. We say, what an idiot. You say, well, that's not nice. You're you're right. What a moron. (laughs) That he wasn't strong enough. It's probably not biblical, but... God's cool with it? No, that's not right. So this health and wealth stuff, we say, no, that's ridiculous. That's not how God works. You can't buy God's favor. And yet we do. We say no to something. One weekend we go out with friends and we we don't get drunk. We go home and say, yes, victory. I didn't get drunk. I didn't get wasted like I used to do. Good. So now everything's going to go great this week. Right, God? That's not how this works. Anybody tried this? It doesn't go great this week. In fact, odds are it's going to go terrible this week. And then the next weekend you're going to say, well, what's the point of being good if God's not going to hook me up? Because that's not the point of being good is trying to get God to hook us up. The point of being uh, obedient to God's calling is we love God enough and we want our uh, glory to come from Him and not from our own things. What do we get out of serving God? Verse 4. The world with respect to our life, they are surprised when we don't join in them, in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So what's the result? We say no to this world, we say yes to God, and then what's our experience in this world? The world then comes at us and says, what is wrong with you? So while on the one hand, as Christians, we think, well, if I I obey God, then God's gonna bless me, what we're actually learning from the Bible is we are blessed, But in fact, it may come through hardship. It may come through rejection. It may come from the world looking at you and saying, what's your problem? Back in the middle of the 20th century, there were some experiments that were done, uh, psychiatric experience, called the Ash Conformity Experience. You heard of these? So here's what they did in these experiments. They had three people get in a room and they were shown a picture. One picture was a, a line. And then the other picture had two lines, one really long and one the same length as the first line. And they asked a really hard question. Here's the question. Which line is the same as the first one? So when they asked people this on the street or in the control group, which they got the answer right all the time, every time. It was not a trick question. One long line, one the normal size. Which one's that size? Everybody got it right. Then they switched it up. They put three people in the room. The first two people answered the wrong answer and the third person what did that person do Well, still somewhere around sixty percent of the time they still answered correctly but instead of everybody getting it right some 35 to 40 percent of the people would change their answer and say the wrong one because the first two people had answered incorrectly and then they interviewed people after and the level of stress people experienced in these experiments was unbelievable sweating and anxiety and fear and not understanding and questioning their own judgment. Some people answer different because, well, I don't know what I'm talking about. They must know what they talk about. Other people said, well, I knew it was the wrong answer, but I didn't want to be the outsider. And and the stress and difficulty people were under in these experiments. And this is what we're discovering in the scripture. As soon as we leave the world and walk into relationship with God in Jesus Christ and say, I want to say no to my passions and yes to obedience to God, we now find ourselves in a room and two other people in the room are saying, what is wrong with you? And the world will malign us. Even other believers will malign us. And we live now under the pressure of living in a world that views Christians at best as strange and at worst as harmful or burdensome to culture or wrong. So how do we make it to the end when life is hard. Let me read the whole passage here. Verse 4, 5, and 6. With respect to this, they are surprised, that is the world. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged, excuse me, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. How to make it to the end when life is hard. Verse 5 gives us the answer. Be aware that life is more than this life. In the gospel, life goes beyond the grave. But, they will give an account. But, we will stand before God. This life may be difficult, but this life for us is longer than this life. Luke chapter 14. Jesus talks a little bit about this in Uh, one of his messages, one of his sermons. Great crowds had accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said this. This is Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He did not have a real good marketing person. Might need to tone down the message there. Verse 27. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come, up, come after me cannot be my disciple. Think about it, verse 28. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. How do we make it to the end when life is hard, when following Christ is hard? Again, I don't know how to say this nice. Jesus tells us we need to factor that into the equation of following Him. He's telling us to follow Him is to take up our cross and walk a road of difficulty, walk a road of suffering, of saying no to my own desires and yes to God's purposes, saying no to my desire to have importance and significance and power in this world and saying yes instead to having all of that in Christ later. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you want life? Do you want eternal life that lets forever? Do you want forgiveness for all the sins you've ever done? It's very simple. Jesus offers that through faith in Him. But what He doesn't offer, is forgiveness of sins and then a life for the rest of this life that is hashtag blessed and you know what I mean by that well if you don't go on Twitter do a search hashtag blessed I don't know that you're gonna see a bunch of entries that are oh it was so great today my family abandoned me hashtag blessed right? we, have a, we have a wrong view of this we need to understand how do we make it to the end we understand the end is not the end The end is just the beginning. We have a life in store in Christ that lasts forever, and we have to decide, we have to count the cost. Are we willing to live in this world of difficulty knowing that the life we have to gain in the future is so much better? Christ is the only way to God, and the world finds this distasteful. It used to be there were a lot of things about what the Bible teaches that were difficult for us as people, thus as a culture, to handle. What is becoming more and more hard, or I should say difficult, for people to handle is this. There is only one way to have a relationship with God. It is through Jesus Christ only. All roads don't lead to God. Only one road leads to God. His name is Jesus. All the others are destructive dead ends. There used to be a lot of things we could say that might offend people today, but that is probably the most offensive thing you can say in our modern-day culture. There is only one way to God. His name is Jesus. And the time is coming when our world is not going to tolerate it. That's already cases in many places around the world today. How do we make it to the end? We need to be aware. We need to count the cost. Once we say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to turn my away from my own passions and follow His way, we need to understand we've now entered into a life where everybody else in the room with us is saying, what is wrong with you? Culturally, in our family, even other Christians we might know, we'll say, what is wrong with you? And we're going to experience pressure and difficulty. And that is precisely what the people of 1 Peter chapter 4 were experiencing. And we might, you might be hearing this message and saying, you know, I could have stayed home. It was smoky. I could have watched something on TV that's much more encouraging. But here's the thing. Here's what's so critically important to understand. The people that first people were writing to were reading this, were going, oh, thank the Lord. We thought something was wrong with us. We thought things are so bad. We thought certainly God must be peeved off at us. Now to read and realize that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way God has called us to be conformed to his image in difficulty, in struggle. For them, it was great comfort. For us, it may be difficult to read. We say, well, I don't want any more difficulty than I need, and I don't want you to have any more difficulty than you should have either. But when it happens, we should start realizing this is not the exception. This is where God is taking us to make, more, make us more and more like Christ. Our view of the world around us sees life as beyond the grave in Christ Jesus. Look back at 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 5 and 6. They will give an account. Those not in Christ will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The authorized version, of course, is the cool way of saying it. It's the quick and the dead. Anybody got that one? It's one of those cool verses. They should have left it that way. That just sounds awesome. Give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we say the world around us is opposed to us. The world around us is persecuting us. Uh, Us and some uh, others around the world, well, we need to realize there will be a day where every person will stand before God and give an account. They will give an account. There will be justice for those who have wronged us in Christ Jesus. And he says, the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That is, those who came before us, heard the gospel, they're still alive. We went to their funeral, don't worry about it they're still alive in Christ in the gospel they're having a better day than we are they are still alive in the Spirit because the gospel the power of Christ to forgive takes us from death to life and we live forever with Christ Jesus so we see life as very different than those who aren't in Christ to to be here is to endure suffering but this here is very very short Now, depending on your age, I'm not going to say any of you are old. You're very, very young. Looks like a group of college students. Trying. It seems like the older you get, the shorter life seems, right? You know, I've got a, a little one. He's five or six years old, wins dinner, and it's in an hour. Oh, that's forever, right? And then I said to somebody the other day, are you ready for Christmas yet? Now, they're older than me. They said, no, it's coming so quick. I mean, it's, right? It's July. Well, that's a, doesn't it start to just do that? The years are just flying by. Some of you are a day or two older than me, it looks like. And you're like, the days aren't flipping by. The weeks, it's the decades. Oh, what, I'm 90? When did that happen? Don't worry. 90 is the new uh, 87. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't have. To. 90 is the new 30. Don't worry about it. You're fine. I don't know where we got on that one. It goes quick, but what we're saying is this life is just, this is just the stopover. This is the short bit. Our real life begins at the end of this life. We look at life differently, and we we look at those who are opposed to the message of Christ and understand they will have to stand before God and give an account, and we look at our own life and we say, one day I will stand before the Lord and say, but for Jesus, I shouldn't be here, but Jesus, so I'm here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. We get one shot at this. We get one life to determine, by God's grace, whether or not we're going to put our hope here or in Christ alone. Once this chapter closes, the opportunity to trust Christ ends, we will stand before him, and the question will be, what was your, where was your position on Christ? Where was your faith? Was it in Christ or not? In Christ, come on to my blessing. Not in Christ, you are separated from God forever. We view this life as longer and beyond the grave, one day presence of God, and all will stand before him. Two, two more verses just very quickly, then we'll move on. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this. Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. Uh, silly story. I shouldn't share a personal story, but it's silly. I'm getting old, and I was having a, a bit of a deal with my ankle. It hurt. And the, the injury is this, 46. That's the injury. I'm 46 years old. My wheels are going out. And uh, so I went to the doctor, I said, what, what can you do to make that not hurt anymore? Because uh, it makes me irritable. He said, well, I'll give you a shot of cortisone in your heel. I said, yeah, let's do that. But my son was with me. He's five or six years old. And I said, now, doc, before you stick a giant needle of cortisone in my Achilles tendon, um, should he leave? Am I going to say some things that he's not quite ready to, like I might have to explain some vocab. He said, no, this won't be that bad. It, it, as it turns out, it did smart a bit. Uh, as a, but then, but then, oh my lands, why didn't I come two weeks ago, right? It's like, so it hurts a little bit. I'm kind of a pansy. It hurt a bit. And then the Novocaine kicked in and it started, like, oh, I, now I don't even remember how much I hurt. I don't even care. Right? Well, this is what the Bible is telling us about this suffering. He's saying, listen, it hurts a bit. And right now we don't have any other frame of reference. But we're going to step across the threshold into eternity, and we're going to experience rest like we never have before, and we're going to go, oh, Lord, what was the big deal? Ah, this is, it was nothing. This is what the Bible is telling us. I consider the sufferings of this time not worth comparing to the glory of God. We're going to step across the threshold into that time, and and we're going to say, oh, it was nothing. I was freaking out over nothing. Now, right now, it seems like everything, doesn't it? The world is falling apart. Do we believe what the Bible says or don't we? A little further on in Romans chapter 8, it says this in verse 31. I'm going to read several verses. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You, you can try this. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's nobody. Nobody. No, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody can oppose us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Same answer. Nobody. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Anybody in here in in Christ? Raise your hand if you're a believer. Okay, good. Can anybody bring a charge against you? Nope, that's what I just said. Read the Bible, right? Have you done anything that maybe someone could? Hands, hands are not going up as quick on that one. Say, <laughs> So this is where theologically, you've done some stuff this week. Remember that one thing? Oh, yeah, you could be charged for that. Now Maybe not criminally. Some of you, maybe. I don't know. It's between you and the Lord and, and the DEA. <laughs> Say, who can bring a charge against God's law? Well, what do you do with that theologically? You've blown it this week. Some of you brought kids to, to church. You blew it on the way here. You have to confess not to God, but also your children on the way home. Who wants in and out? Yay. I know how that works. Right. Who will bring a charge against you? No one. It doesn't count. Our sin does not rest on us. It rests on Christ. Who will bring a charge against God elect? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We cannot be accused because our sin rests on Christ. We cannot be charged because we have righteousness in Christ alone. We will suffer and we will die and we will live forever as conquerors. When we step across the threshold, this short time of suffering will seem like nothing. It's a matter of faith, but we must rest in this. The effects of the gospel in our life reach beyond the grave to glory to come forever for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. How do we make it to the end when life is hard? We are like Jesus. We say no to sin even though it's hard. We say yes to suffering even though it's hard because we know God is gonna make it right in the end. All right, how to make it to the end? When temptation is intense, when life is hard, and finally when you feel alone. If we're gonna be in the world and the world is gonna be opposed to us if we claim righteousness in Christ alone, then our relationship with the body of believers needs to be really good. If we are going to be in the world and feel alone because we are claiming Christ alone, then our relationship with other believers needs to be really good. Look at verse uh, 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. If you're wondering, that guy who wears the sandwich board says the end is near, he's quoting this verse. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of... Of your prayers. How to make it to the end when you feel alone. Think of it this way if a field soldier is out on the field, he's in the battle, he's in the foxhole, and he needs supplies, he's going to either radio back to the supply officer, or he's going to send a dispatch, or he's going to send a courier, and he's going to ask for supplies. Please send these supplies. So you've got the quartermaster or the supply officer sitting in his office, and the dispatch comes through, and the field officer is sending a dispatch to him. We're in the field. Here's what we need. And he opens up the field notes, and he's getting ready to dispatch the supply team, and he says, I need a 47-inch lamp paddle TV. <laughs> and what is the field officer? What, he's uh, Does do they even have power in that factual? hole? Next, I need a generator for the TV you're sending. <laughs> I also need a very long cable. See, it doesn't make any sense, does it? And so what he's saying is he that the end of all things is near. Have a viewpoint of our place in history, both in our life and history, and have that affect our mindset on how we approach the Lord. What's it say? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here's what he's saying, not to make too light of it. If the Lord was going to return at 5 o'clock this evening, what would you pray for between now and 5 o'clock this evening? And that's how he's asking us to view the world around us. Since it's the end, since the final chapter of history is the chapter we're living in, how then should our prayers uh, be affected? It might affect the kinds of things we're seeking the Lord for. If the end of all things is going to come soon, therefore we ought to be praying for things that will last beyond the grave. The end of all things is soon, so there be, therefore be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Where you are determines your priorities, and what the Bible is telling us is where we are. We're in the end. We're in the last chapter. There's no other chapters after this one. The next thing to happen is the Lord returns, book closes, eternity happens. The Bible tells us where we are and asks us, in worship to God, to live our lives knowing where we are in history. We're not in the Garden of Eden. We're at the end of the book. It's the fourth quarter. The war is almost over. It is time for diligence, and it is time for focus, and it is time for our prayers to liken, uh, to to be reflected in that sobriety. Look at what else it says, verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're okay with the prayer one. We can do that on our own. Now we have to love each other earnestly. That's harder. would well, be easier if everybody was more lovable, meaning they did everything I wanted when I wanted. How do we do this? What does this mean? Love covers a multitude of sins. When I was in college, the, the college I went to had a waveless pool, and it was for swimming laps. you know what a waveless pool is? In most pools will have water in them if they're done right. Um, but then the, the edge of the pool, the water is below the edge of the pool. And they do that because if the water is higher than the edge of the pool, well, physics says the water's going to run out, apparently. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. And so what happens when you're swimming in that pool, the waves slosh around, it builds and builds and builds. A waveless pool, in fact, does have more water in it, and it's higher than the edge of the pool. And actually, there are gutters all the way around the pool. So when the water flows out, it then flows into those gutters and then goes into a reservoir and gets pumped back into it. So when a wave on a waveless pool comes, it flows right over the edge of the pool, out of the pool, and then goes down the gutter. And the result is the waves go away very, very quickly. And this is what the Bible is calling us to as Christians. Some yahoo shows up at church. It's probably me. It's fine. And says something, and you want to just punch him in the face. Or you want to say, God bless you. Oh, was that your car I hit on the way out? Oops. <laughs> However you want to do that. And, and so somebody offends us because they're a human. And then what we want to do is that wave of offense hits us. And then what we're doing is we're grabbing that wave and say, oh, it's coming, brother. At some point, you thought you got wet? It's on like Donkey Kong. I'm going to hit you at some point, And you won't know it's coming because I'm super passive aggressive. And you won't even know what I'm mad about. I'm not going to tell you either. And I'm going to hit you with that wave. And then the Bible says something like this. Instead, above all, let that wave of hostility wash over and just go away. And it just flows away. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, no, of course it's not fair. So we have to recognize where where does that offense go? We take it and say, I don't have to carry it. I'll let Jesus carry it. Jesus paid the price for my sin. They'll also pay for this yahoo sin. I'm going to trust that Jesus will make things right in the end. He says, in the church, in the body of believers, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and sin, or love will cover a multitude of sins. We have enough pressure from the world around us rejecting us. We don't need to come together and reject one another. Even though we may have met plenty of reason To do. Look what it keeps, a few more challenges it gives us as a body of believers. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Many of us can do the first half really good. Show hospitality, then he says without grumbling. And why was this important? Back when this letter was written, there wasn't a church building. These people were meeting in one another's homes. Likely what was going on is somebody would have their home assigned for a period of time. So my home is where everybody's going to meet for the next four weeks. And then when it's my turn, it's done, we're going to meet in the Smith's home and it would sort of rotate. And so I'd say, show hospitality to one another. So somebody comes up to me, say Todd, since he's not here, and he says something to me that's super offensive, whatever that might be. He really offends me, really tweaks my nose, says something about my family, makes a joke, he's an idiot, what a jerk. Now it's my turn to have church in my home. Am I inviting Todd? Oh, no way. I'm gonna actually send him an invitation and give him the wrong home. At the Wilson's home, go there. It's great. They've got a great setup. Just let yourself in. It's fine. And so, see what's happening is, see, it's one thing if, if somebody offends you here in church, you can even show up. Well, I can just kind of avoid them. It's a big rooms, several hundred people there. I'll just if I see them, I can go to the other part of the worship center. But see, that's not how they could do it. They're coming over. They're going to be sitting on your living room uh, sofa. They're going to be eating your food, petting your dog. And you're going to have to figure out, am I going to carry this burden, or am I going to extend hospitality the way the Bible says I should? Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And listen, All the more as you see the day drawing near. The end is near. Encourage one another. Continue to meet together in all all hospitality and all grace and all forgiveness. Encouraging and stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Why? Because saying no to sin is hard. Living contrary to the world is hard. We don't need to make it hard to get together. Some of us say saying it would be a lot easier to get together if some of those folks would get their act together. But that's not the answer the Bible gives. It's easy to get together because in a culture of grace, we let stuff go and say, Christ handles it. I can let it go. How to make it to the end when we feel alone. Put a high priority on love and relationship in the body of Christ to provide support, to provide prayer, to provide encouragement as we engage in the difficult uh, task of living for God by saying no to sin, saying yes to Christ and living in a world that is more and more rejecting God's ways. When you come to church, are you a guest or are you a host? When you get together with the body of believers, are you a guest or are you a host? And just something I'm gonna throw out there for your consideration, the idea of somebody being a guest as a Christian in the body of believers is foreign to the New Testament. There isn't one, there is those who are in Christ and those who are not, and those who are in Christ are called to host one another hospitably. Look what it says, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Some people teach, some people serve. He basically covers those two categories in verse 11. And he is saying, when we come together as a body of believers, our tendency is to want to say, okay, here's what I'm going to need to get out of this. I need this. I need to be served in a particular way. And the Bible calls us, in the end of times, the end of all things, the last chapter of the book, to come and approach the body of believers much differently. To approach the body of believers saying, I am called into ministry as a servant of the Lord in this body of believers. Whether I speak or whether I serve, I am going to, for the glory of Christ, look for my opportunity to be hospitable among the body of believers. This is just the fact of the matter. I don't mean to be too critical. The fact of the matter is most Christians today, at least in the United States, approach going to church the way you approach going to a restaurant. Was the seating good? Was the air conditioning nice? Were the donuts halfway decent? They were good. Is coffee okay? Do they have any microbrew? Do they have cold brew? Was it clean? Was there any people there who who were weird? Were there any weird people? Isn't that a funny thing? Oh yeah, I went to this one church and this guy acted real weird. You went to a church and somebody acted weird. Having grown up in a church, let me just square this one away for you. It's all of them. We literally think the Savior's coming back on a white horse. And he is. It's awesome. Most people think that's weird. A church is full of weird people. And you go to church as as a visitor and you're surprised when somebody acts strange. When literally the call of the church is to reach out to all those who would receive him, even the weird ones. I might even suggest especially the weird ones. Then when a church has people in it who act strangely, oh, well, I'm going to go to the church. have some more normal, kind of squared away people. Right? This is how we we approach the body. We're constantly evaluating. See, in the first century, that never would have happened because there wasn't a place you went to church. You were the church wherever that group of people happened to be hanging out for the day. And it's a completely different standpoint on how we approach the body of believers. It's a very different for us. How do we make it to the end? We change our view of the body of believers. Our calling is to honor one another, forgive one another, show love to one another, and to serve one another. Isolation in the world and in the uh, church community is the default. And so, In order to experience this, it requires diligence and discipline and faith and humility to say, in order for me to walk well with Jesus, I'm going to have to walk well with these people. All right, how to make it to the end? When temptation is intense, life is hard, and I feel alone. A couple of questions to ask and then we'll close. Say no to sin that you want. I know. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Here's what I mean by that. I tend to hear most of us, when we're talking about sin and how bad it is, we tend to rail about sins we have no interest in. right? Some of us don't have trouble drinking and getting drunk. And so we rail against drunks. Rail against people who have no self-control. They're over-drinking. And what the Bible here, he saying, I'm not asking you to be railing against all those sins, culturally or the people around you, that you don't struggle with What he's calling us to do here is examine in our heart the sins we want, the sins we desire. Greed, you want money more than anything else? Most of us do. That's a sin we want. How about gossip? Gossip's not wrong. I'm telling the truth about somebody to somebody else. They need the information, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Besides, they have it coming. And so I embellish it a little bit. Big deal. No, he's saying no to the sin I want. The Bible calls us, because it's the end, to say these are things that are wrong and they are things not that I'm struggling with, it's things I desire. And the Bible says, let's say no to those things. Anger. Greed. Inappropriate relationships, whether or not they're physical or not. Inappropriate closeness with people who aren't our spouse. Say no to the things that fill our heart with peace and happiness and say, no, I want peace and happiness. I don't want it from those things. How do we make it to the end? Say no to the sin we want. That is, the sin we're not struggling with, the sin we enjoy. Say, well, I'm not sure what it is. Go home, read your Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to tell you what your sin is that you're struggling with. He will answer you. Through your spouse, <laughs> I'm, that's that's stupid. I'm sorry, and that's a good thing. I'd say that as though it's a negative thing. It's one of the things our spouses bring to the table. Thank you. How do we make it to the to the end? Say yes to God's plan. Say yes to God's plan. What's God's plan for you to learn? to live the life of Christ in obedience in this world and to be less concerned about our success and significance in this world. To say yes to God's plan and say no to approval from the world around us. Say yes to God's plan and no to a deep desire to live a life of comfort and peace and affluence and having everything I want. God blesses me with those things. Thank God for it. When he doesn't, it's just a matter of time, to say yes to God's plan, which is in the moment, the heat of the trouble, the pain I'm experiencing now, saying there's not something wrong with me and there's not something wrong with God. This is God's plan. Praise the Lord for the pain he brings. Finally, say yes to God's people. How can you honor the people of the Lord? How can you serve the people of God? Start in your home. Look in your church community. It is impossible to walk the life of Christ in isolation. It requires relationship with others. Say no to sin. Say yes to God's plan. Say yes to God's people. We live this life together. Join me as we pray.